and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept since my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and let the last first. So continuing on in Mark chapter 10, you know, last week we covered, ouch, <laughs> I gotta cut my nail. Uh, last week we covered a controversy dialogue about marriage and divorce, followed by a heads up about the status of children and now we have this precious young man who knows, you know, at some self-conscious level or subconscious level, actually self-conscious level, but I guess it's self-conscious too, um, that all his works are still insufficient. All right. He's very much like we all are. All right. Wanting someone to tell us that we're okay and doing enough. It's the human condition, right? We want to earn it, and we want to have at least some measure of confidence that we are finally doing enough, even though we always suspect we aren't. Now, this is one of the few cases where the scriptures points out Yeshua's or Jesus's love for somebody. You know, I always picture this young man uh, about the age of my twin sons who will have just barely turned 20 when this airs. Uh, and, and if you want to imagine me as 40 years old, you just, and that I, I wasn't significantly older when they were born, you just go right ahead. <laughs> but it, it helps me see what Yeshua saw in him, that genuine hope and earnestness, uh, not yet with the wisdom of an elder or the overconfidence that comes with being indoctrinated enough that he believes that his good deeds can outnumber his bad and he can just call it good. 
at some level, he wants Yeshua to tell him that it's all okay. At least that's my take, and so let's explore it. I might throw in what some different scholars take from this, uh, where it differs from what I see uh, there if there's time. I'm sure there will be time. I, you know, I love to see what different people take away from their accounts. Sometimes I agree and sometimes I don't, but I always respect it as long as it's based on solid scholarship and not just, you know, people taking... 21st century mindsets and saying, well, if this was me, okay, because they didn't think like us. Now, so, you know, if it's nutty, I don't so much respect it. I kind of just kind of go, okay, I'm just going to ignore that. And, you know, I, I try to stay away from nutty material. <laughs> anyway, hi, I am Tyler Don Rosenquist and welcome to Character in Context where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have five years worth of blog over at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. If you have kids, I also have a weekly broadcast where I teach them Bible context in a way that shows them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah. All scripture this week, as usual, comes courtesy of the ESV, the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. A list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. So, uh... Chapter 10, verse, uh, chapter 10 of the Gospel of Mark, starting in verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, so as he was setting out on what journey? Well, his final journey to Jerusalem. Last week's action occurred on the Pilgrim Road, that went from Jericho, which is on the west side of the Jordan, across the Jordan to the east, back into the realm of Herod Antipas, and then south to Jerusalem. Okay? And you have to cross, obviously, again, over the, the Jordan. Um, this was the road that the Jews in the north took to get to Jerusalem because it allowed them to avoid Samaria and the detested Samaritans. And we'll talk about the Samaritans some other time. I can't remember if I've pointed this out. I have told you about all the on-the-way references regarding Yeshua's final trek to Jerusalem to the completion of his mission. Um, we see on the way and on the road. And here we see a reference to his journey. And they all employ the Greek word horos. And it it refers back to Isaiah 46.16, where Yahweh promises, um, and I will lead the blind in a way um, that they do not know. And that in the way is derech in Hebrew and horos in the Septuagint. 
Um, in past, they have not known I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. Now, this is also the follow-up to the first servant song at the beginning of Isaiah 42. So we will increasingly be seeing Yeshua combating blindness all this way. And we have been since chapter 8. Um, you know, from confronting the disciples about their lack of understanding of his mission to the dealing with their ambition to actually healing blind people. And he does that. Uh, we'll talk about that next week. And also, what was it? Three weeks ago, we did that. It's all part of the whole picture of self-manifestation going on where Yeshua does things that only Yahweh can do in the Hebrew scriptures. But on that account, I do want to deflate some things that people go too far with, I think, misunderstanding, honor, and shame culture, which is so foreign to us. It's not even funny. So, um, first of all, this kneeling before him is explained by the fact that Yeshua is an elder and a respected teacher, at least among the people. All right. This is the proper posture from someone who is seeking patronage which is usually about gaining influence or goods, but is also the posture someone takes when seeking any sort of favor, when they need something that they cannot gain on their own. In this case, he wants an answer to the pressing question he has. He certainly heard the opinions of the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and maybe even the fringe sects like the one in Qumran. And the answers differ wildly depending on which sect of Judaism you consulted. What he wants is Yeshua's opinion, and he's probably hoping for peace of mind, as most of us would do in his shoes. But starting out, he calls him good teacher. And whenever we see this in a public setting, our radar should go off because this is not simply a compliment. Like nowadays, if somebody calls me a good teacher, I am not expected to respond in any sort of formal way, okay? However, you know, if somebody comes up to me and starts buttering me up, my red flags go up out of past experience. Um, sometimes it's innocent, but sometimes it's a trap. According to social conventions, Yeshua was obligated, if he accepted the compliment, to return one because this was a man of high social status. If the beggars by the roadside called him good teacher, then he could bless them or move on or whatever or ignore him. But of course he wouldn't ignore them, you know. Uh, but when a man of high honor status does it, it creates obligations. So right now, Yeshua is going to briefly ignore his genuine, what can I do to inherit eternal life question. Verse 18, and Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So for a moment, he has to deal with a compliment. Okay. He is um, no respecter of persons, never has been and never will be. And so he can't get trapped into being required to return honor for honor. This is called reciprocity. You honor me and I'm expected to honor you in return. It was the accepted social convention among peers. But there's a problem. They aren't peers. 
So Yeshua sidesteps the dilemma that would require him to acknowledge the man as an equal or greater, and he also refuses to snub the young man by ignoring the compliment. So there are two sides of this. He refuses to play both the honor game and the shame game. This is actually a compassionate move. Okay, Paul could say, most excellent Felix in Acts 24.2. But Yeshua is greater than Paul or Felix, obviously, being the divine son of God and greater than the rich young man, obviously. Now, there are people who seize on this and say that he is claiming to be God in the flesh here, but I see that as opportunistic and a big stretch. Although I believe Yeshua is God in the flesh, the Logos, the Word of God who created everything, I don't believe that's what he was saying here. But in refusing to play the honor game, I think he revealed an awful lot more about who he is than he would have by questioning the compliment um, by declaring that only God is good. Um... But after deflecting the compliment bait, you know, regardless of how genuine it might be, he goes back to the question at hand, namely what this young man can do to inherit eternal life. Yeshua's answer is purposefully dissatisfying. Verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your mother, father and mother. Notice that Yeshua does not say, keep the commandments well enough and you will inherit eternal life. Instead, he engages in another misdirect. He wants the young man to state his real concern. He wants the young man to think about it on a deeper level because it, if it was just as simple as this, then there's no Jewish man alive who would be asking this question. Everyone knew the commandments and probably, uh, most everyone kept the external nature of them, well, within accepted interpretational guidelines as we've seen in past teachings like, you know, divorcing your wife because you found someone prettier. Um, you know, pharisaic loopholes. You know, allowed a man to divorce for any reason whatsoever and to deny his ex-wife permission to remarry if it didn't suit him. That's the house of Hillel, not Shammai, which was very strict that divorce was only for cases of adultery, okay? And they also had complicated rulings as to when a man did or did not have to keep his oaths or when he was required to support his aging parents or how much of his wealth he could legal, legally give away to the poor. And of course, we're going to come back to that one. Now, the Qumran sect, possibly the Essenes, um, detested them for all of these oppressive rulings. And we talked about some of that last week. I do want to point out that of these, that, that one of these, sorry, one of these is not among the Ten Commandments, but has direct bearing on this man's specific case. Of course, there are commandments against murder, adultery, theft, lying, and the positive commandment to honor parents in the Ten Commandments, okay? Um, but what's this do not defraud thrown into the mix? It was one thing in the ancient world, okay, for a man to grow rich, you know, by the honest use of his land and livestock. I mean, that's how Abraham became wealthy after all, and Isaac after him, and Jacob, well, there's a lot of debate to the, uh, as to the honesty of his dealings on just about every level. 
Yes, we all hate Laban, and Laban was a skunk, but some of Jacob's tactics were less than kosher, if you know what I mean. But no one begrudged the honest agricultural accumulation of wealth. But when it came to gaining wealth any other way, even the Romans despised it. The reason's simple. The ancient world operated via a zero-sum economy, or what could be called a, a, a limited good system. There was literally only so much to go around. Now, most of us have never faced that here in America until people started hoarding a year ago, and even then it was mostly just toilet paper, you know. Nothing we need to live. There were no actual shortages. People just panicked and looked out for themselves. In a very real way, they were defrauding the system and gaining through depriving others. So they were, um, they were defrauding, okay? That is why prepping is okay and hoarding is evil and oppressive, all right? When there's only so much to go around, if you take more than your fair share, then somebody else is, you know, doing without. Like, you know, maybe a, a single mom who, uh, who lives paycheck to paycheck and she doesn't have the money to store up food and she goes to the store and yeah, you've got it piled up in the pantry, but yeah, she's wondering how she's going to feed her kids this week. Oppression. So in a nutshell, that was the ancient reality and it still is reality in many parts of the world today. And the prophets had a lot to say about wealthy oppressors. Let's look at Hosea chapter 14 verses seven through eight. A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. Amos 4.1. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. Micah 2 verses 1 through 2. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. And this one that I'm about to read right here is about the Messiah becoming... The shepherd to the sheep, um, oppressed by the rich and powerful, um, of Judah in Zechariah 11, 4 through 6. Thus said the Lord my God, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slaughter them and go unpunished, and those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord, I have become rich. And their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land and I will deliver none from their hand. And if you remember all the um, verses about being delivered into people's hands when we did the passion predictions, this is a huge one. That I was saving till now. <laughs> so the wealthy were always under suspicion by the people of the land, the Amharats upon whom the Pharisees looked way down. So what is the young man going to say in response to this addition that has been anything but complimentary? You know, lumping him potentially in with 
rich oppressors. Verse 20, And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Okay, evidently it doesn't faze him at all. Which marks his question and posture as genuine. You know, not all of the wealthy people of the first century were oppressive. And it would seem that as though this young man's conscience is clear with regards to his financial dealings. You know, this is no Zacchaeus who's wealthy by fraud or, or for that matter, Levi, Matthew. But we can sense the frustration in his voice because Yeshua hadn't told him anything he doesn't already know. Yet, this young man's mind is still, you know, unsettled and he's seeking answers. And ex as externals, you know, none of these commandments are hard to keep. We are not slaves to adultery and theft and murder and that sort of thing. The lying and honoring parents are a bit harder, but in those days it was considered honorable to lie to outsiders and truth was only deserved by those to whom you owed loyalty. Okay. Dishonoring parents brought ruin to the entire family. So it isn't like it is today where anything seems to go. And we lie all the time now, just like they did then. If I have time at the end, I will include a book quote to show you what I mean. But, you know, we still have a lot of ground to cover in the meantime. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, the fact that this failed to satisfy the young man displayed his genuineness to Yeshua. So Yeshua issued a call to discipleship, you know, even at this late date with Passover just around the corner. This young man is special for even asking as it was a common belief during those times that wealth came from God's favor, unless it was ill-gotten. And the thought that some people were just rich without any deeper meaning eluded them. All right. I mean, we can understand that you can be rich without being particularly righteous or evil, but they didn't understand that. It was a very black and white world. That this man's conscience was clear from the vantage of the Sinai covenant and he was still seeking counsel tells us he wasn't buying it though. If he was sinning against the covenant laws, I believe he would have moved to correct it as, as did Zacchaeus. But Yeshua isn't talking about overt or gross sin here. He's talking about priorities. If you want to inherit eternal life, then follow me. Oh, and to do that, in your case, means that you have to leave everything behind because I know you have security in your wealth and in the status it gives you and not God. That's your problem. That's what's holding you back. That's why you don't feel any peace about inheriting eternal life because you are unable to enter into it on terms that leave you completely dependent upon God. But if you can get over that, if you can do it, you have full confidence that you will inherit the kingdom. Oh, man. And yeah, I'm going to talk about prepping again really quick here because, you know, there's a lot of things that people can be scared about having to live without. 
things that make them feel like they don't have to be dependent on God. I'll tell you something. When I had my bad stroke back in 1997, I wasn't a believer, but I'll tell you what I was saying to God. God, please don't take my mind away because if I don't have that, I don't have anything at all. And I absolutely believed it. My mind was what kept me safe in my, in my estimation. And so really the stroke was a blessing, although it did send me on a two-year just sin spree where I was just about nuttier in a fruitcake and doing horrible things. Um, long story. But um, at the end, Yahweh was finally able to break through, you know, with the gospel of the kingdom, and I was able to come to him. And we'll be right back. This is Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome back to the second half of um, this week's character in context, where we're talking about the rich young ruler. And I kind of left it in kind of a, you know, <laughs> thing at, at the end. But, you know, we all have something, okay? With this rich young man, it was his, his possessions. Um, but I know a lot of people who, if Yahweh, you know, spoke to them and, and said, I need you to give up um, ev all of your prepping stuff, okay? I want you to give up. I want you to empty out your pantry. Give it all to the poor. Don't replace it and follow me. They couldn't do it, all right? Because that's their security. They don't think that um, Yahweh could protect them without it. Other people, you know, it might be their house or their retirement or just, you know, and, and generally we don't know what those things are until he always says, okay, <laughs> you know, ditch such and such now and, you know, and, and give yourself to me completely. And they go, oh, we go, oh my gosh, no. So, you know, we shouldn't be too hard on the rich young ruler because, gosh, we've all got something. Okay. All right. Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Um, you know, like I said, we shouldn't be too hard on him. We all have something that gives us security, false security in this life. Something makes us feel safe and secure, you know, whatever it is that we don't want to give up. And it, it's not always physical. I think some of the worst offenders are psychological unforgiveness, bitterness, the need for revenge, ego, pride, ambition, violence, um, social status. Um, I know people who, um, who couldn't stand to live if they couldn't be like working out like really buff and thin or, or have their makeup on or have their hair done. All right. Um, how about doctrinal certainties that make us feel like we are part of an exclusive remnant and save through this or that bit of knowledge instead of ditching it all and relying on God alone and allowing him to put us back on the potter's wheel to make something of the mess 
you know, we come to him with when we get saved. Positions aren't always money. Money's a hard one, but anything. We would sacrifice anything to keep, um, including going deeper with, you know, Yahweh, is a problem. When Yeshua tells us that if we do not forgive, then we will not be forgiven, and we cling to our unforgiveness as a right, we're walking away from discipleship. I'm not saying we're unsaved when we do it, but we are on a very real level refusing to allow him in and in you know to follow him in the wholehearted way that he deserves and demands. And so you know, the rich young ruler went away and sometimes we do the same. We decide we can't follow him yet. Maybe after all our enemies are dead and ruined, then we can forgive. But good thing Yeshua didn't feel the same way. Boy, howdy. Verse 23, And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And I want you to notice here, that the word is difficult and not impossible. And anything we have of wealth of and cherish above Yeshua, and especially those things which are incompatible with the kingdom, as I mentioned already, makes it difficult to enter into the kingdom. But the kingdom is now and not future. This is important. Those These things we hoard, whether physical or emotional, you know, they keep us from entering into the kingdom in the here and now. They keep us from true relationship because we are too busy doing things like arguing with the Sermon on the Mount and the rest of the hard commandments. We are distant because we say, I'm keeping the Torah commandments, so that's enough. These other requirements aren't there, so Yeshua must be talking in impossibilities or just in spiritual terms. And when we do that, and you know what I'm talking about, all right, we can feel the walls go up. I can feel the walls go up because I've done it, those walls need to come down so that we can have the fullness of kingdom life now before it fully manifests in the future. So um, what is it that, can't remember which scholar it is, maybe it's N.T. Wright, but they say we're in the age of here but not yet. <laughs> kingdom of God is here, but it's also not yet. You know, we're waiting. Maybe it's Brueggemann. I don't know. There are so many. Just giving credit to somebody other than me. I didn't come up with that. Um, but more than that, the world needs us to be fully part of that kingdom now because they are hungering for the reality of what it will mean for their lives if, if we're doing that now. Verse 24, And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Now, why were the disciples so amazed? Because the beliefs at the time said that as long as a rich man was generous, he was totally good with God. Because, you know, he was being generous, so he had a leg up on the poor people who couldn't be generous. <clears throat> it's like a vicious circle. Um, so it was like their wealth gave them a commandment that they could fill that the others were failing at, all right? Which is so messed up. Not only did they have the advantages of wealth, but they also had the advantages of using that wealth to get in good with God. Um, 
Mishnah Tractate Arakin uh, 8.4 talks about this. A man may devote part of his flock or his herd of his Canaanite manservants or maidservants or um, of his field of possession. But if he devoted the whole of them, they are not considered validly devoted. This is the view of Rabbi Eliezer. Rabbi Eliezer um, Ben Azaria said, If, even to the highest, no one is permitted to devote all his possessions, how much more should one be careful about sparing in regard to one's possessions? And I'm going to remove the, the most of the Gemara commentary, except for the portion that is applicable to the first century. You know, whenever we see the first Tana or Zugot, like Hillel and Shammai in a ruling, pay close attention and also look at Usha, which is where the Sanhedrin was moved to after their disastrous end of the Bar Kokhba revolt in 135. Rulings attributed to this era are more pertinent than others, and some rulings you will see are not pertinent at all. Um, Rabbi Eliezer uh, Ben Azaria said, if even to the highest no one is permitted, etc., but that is exactly what the first Tana has said. The difference between them is implied in what Rabbi Eliezer said, for uh, Rabbi Eliezer said, in Usha they ordained that no one, that, that one who would distribute his possessions must not go beyond one fifth of them. And this is where it's important. It happened that one wanted to distribute more than one-fifth and his colleagues would not permit him to do so. Who was that? Rabbi Yeshahab, Yeshabab, sorry. Some say it was Rabbi Yeshabab who wanted to distribute it and his colleagues would not let him do so. Who was chief among them? Rabbi Akiva. This was retrieved from instonebrewer.com. So this man's dilemma if he sells all, then he is bucking the conventional piety and will become destitute himself and a burden on society, which we get from the rest of the Gemara on this Mishnah. And that's what they're saying. You can't give it all away because then you're going to be a burden on society. So he has to choose whether to follow Yeshua or the Pharisees. And no one bucked their authority lightly. He also likely had family obligations, and so they had claims on his wealth. He would have to face more than just poverty. Okay, verse 25. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, this was actually a common idiom among Palestinian Jews. All right. Whereas among the Babylonian Jews, it would be expressed as an elephant going through the eye of the needle. As the elephant was the largest animal commonly known to Babylonians, the camel was the biggest animal a Palestinian Jew would see in their lifetime. And for those of you who hate the term Palestinian Jew, that's actually the term that's used by Jewish scholars, okay? Because the entire region was called Palestine by the Romans, okay? This has nothing to do with modern-day Palestinians. Let's go with the old meaning, okay? Um, it... Anyway, this eye of the needle or camel going through the eye of the needle or an elephant going through the eye of a needle means proverbially that something is impossible or very, very difficult and, um, you know, finds common expression in extra biblical writings. Unfortunately, people like to get cute and make stuff up. And at some point, you know, it emerged 
as a myth, you know, sometime before the 15th century that there was a gate in Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle and that the only way a camel could go through it was to remove everything it was carrying and for it to kneel. You know, cute, but no. <laughs> Even a casual knowledge of Jerusalem architectural geography will tell you there was no such gate, and it would be ridiculous to have one that small on a road approachable by camel, and more than that, there were so many other gates that a driver would have to be an idiot to choose that approach into the city. So it falls into that category with wrapping lambs in priest undies, okay? The napkin at the Last Supper and the high priest bringing the lamb into the city four days before Passover and being celebrated and Yeshua stealing his thunder by arriving first. All myths that get made up in order to sound interesting but no foundation in reality and actually quite the contrary to, quite contrary to the context of the times. Uh, verse 26, and they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Again, they're thinking if someone who can generously give alms can't be saved based on the merits he earns by doing it, then what chance do the rest of us have? And back to what he said a few verses earlier when for the... Uh, only time he calls them children. Last week we talked about how children receive gifts versus how adults receive gifts. We often start thinking about, you know, whether we should give a gift in return, how expensive it should be, do we deserve this gift, what can we do to repay it, etc., etc. But, but kids, you know, man, you give them a gift and they just run with it, okay? <laughs> They're happy. They don't ask questions. They don't care. That's how we are commanded to be when approaching God for salvation. It's a gift. How we lived afterward is a matter of love and loyalty and submission. But do we have the faith to simply take it with gladness? Or are we immediately thinking about what we have to do in order to earn it or to give enough back to be on equal terms with God and not be utterly beholden to him? Totally wretched in terms of what we have to offer in return, which is nothing, okay? But we hate that we can't give enough to earn it. It really offends us. It offends us because we don't understand the concept of allegiance to a king or to a god. In a way, you know, pagans had a leg up because they had no code of ethics that their gods demanded of them, so they really didn't see themselves so much being able to earn favor, what they did was worship, or aka take care of, the physical needs of their gods, like servants, and to appease them when they were being, when they were perceived as being angry. The Torah and all the finagling that went along with it had implanted this idea that they could live a life where their good or meritorious deeds could outweigh their evil deeds, and that they would inherit eternal life. And you still see this today, actually. Yeshua tells us no. Paul tells us no. There is no divine scale like we see on the tombs of Egyptian pharaohs, where the evil in our hearts can't weigh more than Ma'at's feather, or we're doomed, all right? Salvation is by grace. It is a gift in exchange for nothing except our allegiance to Yahweh through his son Yeshua. 
how we live after that, the works we do to bring healing and justice to the world, and especially on behalf of the vulnerable, determines how serious we were about our allegiance, and uh, it will determine our greatness in the kingdom. Keeping commandments in the comfort of our own living rooms isn't really what God had in mind um, in terms of costly grace and costly loyalty. We wish. We totally wish. Verse 28. Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. Oh, Peter. Never one to miss an opportunity to exalt himself feels the need to point out that they did what the rich young man would not. <laughs> Even though they didn't have to sell everything, right? They didn't have hardly anything. And it's good that they did it, but he's also missing the point because there are plenty of things they have not given up and will not until after the resurrection. Things like a desire to do violence, a contempt for the Gentiles, ambition and desire for worldly glory, position and Honor. Oh, yeah, they still want that. Verse 29. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house, or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the sake of my gospel. It's important. For my sake and the sake of my gospel. For the sake of the gospel. Sorry. Look at Ananias and Sapphira laying dead at the feet of Peter and the other apostles because they wanted the status associated with giving stuff up without actually doing it. You know, as you recall in Acts 5, the couple sold a piece of land and conspired among themselves to give some of the money to the brethren without giving it all but to claim that they had. That they had, you know, that they'd handed over the full sale price. Well, husband comes in first, lies like a dog. Peter rebukes him for lying to the Holy Spirit and the dude drops dead. And the same thing happens with his wife later in the day. And the disciples didn't lay a hand on them. They didn't curse them. They, you know, it's... There's a big difference between someone sacrificing for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of Yeshua and someone making a sacrifice for the sake of prestige and admiration in the community. And what is this about leaving family? Is Yeshua suggesting abandonment? Notice there's nothing about leaving wives here. Okay? He already, he, he knows they already want to do that. We covered their love of divorce last week, and it's really brutal in Matthew. No, and you know, if and when we leave family for the sake of Yeshua, it is only because we have been forced out. We are commanded to be peacemakers, forgiving, merciful, patient, all that. And let's go on. All right, um, go back and so we can get the full thing. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Following Yeshua in those days came with a cost. Sometimes just excommunication, which was bad enough. Sometimes imprisonment and death, 
rejection by a community and family, etc., you know, depending on whether you were a Jew or Gentile. But Yeshua is teaching a reversal of fortune here. Yes, you may lose in the here and now, but you will join a much larger worldwide family of faith. You will have brothers and sisters everywhere. They will open their homes to you and share with you the fruit of their lands. And this is now, but it comes along with persecution. In the world to come, you will additionally receive eternal life. And we have to believe that and keep it in mind. You know, I, I don't think that most believers really truly accept the reality of the world to come. And I say that because they're focused on getting stuff now and keeping stuff now. You know, be it vengeance or status or respect or recognition or money or power or whatever. It's why we can't forgive or, or won't because we're too busy believing that this life is all there is. And if we don't get justice now, our lives will be somehow lacking, but it isn't true. And I speak from experience of being that person and Yahweh leading me into forgiveness and the freedom and peace I have now not always seeking out vengeance, okay? Verse 31, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Like I said, reversal of fortune, and this is a repeated theme in scripture. Um, I wrote about it a lot in my first curriculum book, Honor and Shame in the Bible, and that's, you know, that's the first volume of Context for Kids. We don't get to enjoy things the things in this world that uh, that the unbelievers strive for and feel as though they need. You know, we put our trust in God and in these upside-down virtues. Well, seemingly upside-down virtues, you know, of his kingdom. We fight against, we should fight against violence and oppression with love and forgiveness and the message of peace like William Wilberforce did. And it's crazy, but that's the command. Because we don't get it. We uh, we keep striving to be first in the ways that this world strives to be first by getting the upper hand in whatever way seems best or easiest or quickest. And if we do that, we will find ourselves least in the kingdom because we refuse to play by its radical set of rules. And those who seem like they're complete idiots who don't know what the real world is like, they will be great because they trusted God enough to look like weak fools. It's crazy, but there is the story of the cross and of how the disciples met their end one by one. Um, and okay, so anyway, we're, we're done with that. So I said I would mention that blurb about how we all lie. It's from a really great book. It's um, by Eugene Peterson, Eugene H. Peterson, called The Hallelujah Banquet. Um, my friend Ryan was reading it and he kept quoting in <laughs> how many of these stories begin with my friend Ryan was reading this book and he kept quoting it. So I bought it. Um, one of the large and persistent tasks of living the Christian life is learning to tell the truth. The opposite of telling the truth is telling lies. We lie a lot. Most of us lie a lot. We lie a lot more than we're aware of. We lie even when we think we're telling the truth. The reason we do so is quite clear. We want to be at the center of the action. We want to subordinate all reality, persons, things, and events to our willfulness. We want to control other people's responses 
and manipulate their perceptions. In order to do that, we arrange the data, filter the facts, and shape the information so that we can influence the way things will be heard and seen, so that the response will be congenial to us. Lying is a product, not so much of maliciousness, but of laziness. Most people tell lies with the best of intentions. They think they're helping the cause of their country or company or their own fortunes, and that this is the best way. Or their political party? <laughs> that was me. Okay. Few people, at least at the outset, have bad motives or ill intent. They simply want something good or attractive or pleasing to take place. And the lie seems like a shortcut to make it happen. Lying seems easier than the truth. Most people don't have the patience to go into all the ramifications of the truth. So they lie. And again, this is Eugene H. Peterson, The Hallelujah Banquet. Great book. Came out last year. Oh, and you know, during political years, you sure see it. People who call themselves believers, um, they seem to have no qualms whatsoever lying about people of the other political party or believing absolutely anything. Um, anything that comes along on the internet just as long as it is unfavorable towards their political enemies. Um, so not only are we liars, but we, we so easily believe lies and then we claim to be for righteousness, but we stand for anything but in practice. But we have to be for righteousness first and foremost in our own practices. And what does Revelation say? All liars will be outside New Jerusalem. Lies aren't compatible with Yahweh's kingdom. Anyway, um, we're going to skip over the passion prediction for next week. We did that three weeks ago. You can catch that on my website. And we will be covering three blind men, John James and Bartimaeus. See you then.